0: The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 34. The Fall. Our first inkling that there was trouble ahead came when we spoke to the props man. "'Crazy Cracksmen required a good number of bits and pieces to make it go off well, "'and there were not all things we could cart around with us, "'so we relied on the propsmen at the theatres we played in "'to find the necessary items for us. "'We'd usually send a letter ahead to give the fellow time to locate this and that, "'and so often we'd get a scowl upon our arrival, "'or some wheedling would begin as to why we wouldn't have what we needed. "'Stan and Baldy were particularly good at twisting these chaps around their little fingers. "'Do you really need all this stuff?' the harassed propsman would moan and Stan would grin.' You know we can go out and do our act on a bare stage, but all those props make our act what it should be. And then Baldy would kid the guy. Don't worry about it, we'll get along. And somehow this good-natured geniality would always strike a chord, and we'd always get everything we wanted. There was quite a list, too. It ran to a couple of pages. Furniture, ladders, a working safe, a piano. The showing that the Bostocks had put us in for was to be quite a gala evening. Ordinarily, all the working turns would expect to play two, three or even four houses in a day, but this event was just a single bill that was due to run twice as long as a normal one. In the audience, Claude said, we were expecting bookers from the Keith circuit, the Polly Time, the Orpheums, from Lowe and Pantages, Proctors and the Fox, so there was plenty of work up for grabs. We arrived at the venue, the new Lowe's in the Bronx, and Stan and Baldy headed off to soften up the props guy. They returned almost immediately, wearing puzzled frowns. What's up? I asked. The fellow said there was no problem, Stan said. That's good, isn't it? I said. Because another act sent him virtually the same list, item for item. What? What other act? Don't know, Stan said thoughtfully. Don't know. Claude and Gordon Bostock arrived before the evening's performances got underway and came to the dressing room to let us know the state of play. All set? Claude beamed. He was very sharply dressed, as was his brother. They looked prosperous and confident. In short, exactly the sort of fellows you wanted on your side. We nodded and grinned. We are really looking forward to crazy cracksmen, aren't we, Gordon? We are, Gordon agreed. We have secured you a good slot in the running order, Claude went on, leaving nothing to chance, you know, so you will be on in the second half shortly after the interval. "'Everyone should be refreshed, not anxious to get a drink or use the facilities, "'and boredom should not have set in. "'Or at least, if it has, you will be able to snap them out of it. What?' "'Exactly,' I said. "'Thank you, Claude.' "'We've been buttering up the booker from the Fox circuit,' Claude said, "'and you know he's very interested. Very interested!' "'We looked at one another, excitement and confidence building. "'Gordon Bostock pushed away from the door jamb where he'd been leaning nonchalantly, "'and Claude noticed this and began to take his leave. "'So, do your stuff!' And break your legs. Just one thing, Stan said. Claude turned. Yes? Is there another burglar skit on the bill, do you know? Another? Another burglar skit? Claude looked at Gordon, who gave a small frown and a shake of the head. Well, I, um... Let's see. The brothers began to pore over a sheet listing the various turns that were due to make an appearance. I can't tell. Wait, what's this? Gordon had pointed out a listing, and Claude squinted at it more closely. "'The Keystone Trio?' "'The Keystone Trio? Who the hell are they?' I said. "'Take a wild guess, Dando,' said a voice from the doorway. We all turned, and there, large as life and half again as unpleasant, was Edgar Hurley. To make matters worse, he was dressed as Charlie Chaplin. "'You?' I said, stunned by this development. "'Yes, me. Me and Ted Banks, and Wren.' We're going on midway through the first half, so by the time you lot come on after the interval, you will look like so much old hat. Second-hand news. Hurley chuckled gleefully. But, Stan spluttered, looking to the Bostocks, but they were just as dumbfounded as we were. That's if you get to go on at all, of course. What do you mean? I said. It all depends on whether my lawyer gets down here in time to stop you. What? What? Yes, you see, after our parting of the ways, I took the precaution of protecting my investment of several months' industry by taking out a copyright on the nutty burglars. You didn't get round to doing that, did you? You copyrighted the nutty burglars, Stan said. How? You didn't write it. You haven't any rights to it at all. Interestingly, Hurley replied with exasperating smugness, my lawyer didn't see it that way. And if you are planning to perform anything remotely resembling our copyrighted material on the stage tonight, well, he's going to take a dim view, let me tell you that. Can he? Stan said to Claude. Can he do that? It's just... well, it's theft, pure and simple. I'll have to look into it, Claude said, but his face was troubled. Come, Gordon. The Bostocks left in a hurry, and Hurley smirked. "'Whether you perform tonight or not is actually neither here nor there. "'I will certainly sue to prevent you from taking bookings "'that should by rights be mine.' "'Having delivered his threat, he beamed and gave a little bow. "'I wish you a good evening,' he said, "'however you choose to spend it.' "'Hurley left the dressing-room, "'and appalled silence reigned for a minute or two. "'Then Alice piped up. "'What does this mean?' she said. "'Stan shook his head, as though trying to clear it of an unpleasant dream. "'I'm not sure,' he said. "'Is Crazy Cracksman very like the Nutty Burglars?' Baldy asked. "'It's not the same,' I said. "'But close enough,' Stan said miserably. "'Close enough for it to take a while to prove anything either way.' "'But,' I said, banging my fist on a table, "'that miserable bastard! "'There must be something we can do!' "'I'm not sure there's anything,' Stan said hollowly. "'At least not today.' Baldy walked over to our own props-and-costumes trunk "'and lifted the lid.' "'Here,' he said, handing me a bottle of whisky. "'Since we're not playing, how about some cold tea from Bonnie Scotland?' I took the bottle from him and pulled the cork out with my teeth. "'Good thinking,' I said. "'Very sound.' Just then, Claude Bostock reappeared in the doorway. "'Oh, Arthur,' he said. "'I almost forgot. "'This arrived for you from England.' He handed an envelope across to me, and I grabbed it eagerly and tore it open. I blinked at the contents, momentarily taken aback, for it was not from Tilly, but from my father in Cambridge.' I couldn't remember him ever writing to me before, but his cursive script was familiar from numerous college notices alerting hapless students to the many ways in which they were disappointing him, the head porter. "'Dear Arthur,' he wrote, "'I'm delighted to hear that you were not on board the RMS Lusitania when it sank. However, I had no thought that you might be, so your concern, while welcome, is misplaced. I'm also, by the way, delighted that you're not in Flanders, or climbing Krakatoa, or juggling with explosives.' Your mother and Lance send their best wishes, as do I. This was unusually droll stuff for my father, and made me wonder what he would have made of the climax to the nutty burglars, not that he ever visited the halls or anything as common as that. Once I'd got over my surprise and pleasure at hearing from the old fellow, I began to brood on Tilly and why I had still not heard from her. I had sent a letter to her at the very same time, and by the very same post as the one I had written to my father, so logically she must have received it, I thought, and yet she had not replied. Was I being punished for my thoughtlessness? Had she simply moved on with her life, without me? By the time the evening's entertainment got underway, Baldy and I had killed that bottle and moved on to a second one. Brooding on Tilly and the business with Hurley had sent me into a dark and dangerous mood, which the firewater was fueling nicely. I suppose we should go up and see the Keystone Trio, Stan said mournfully, see exactly what we're dealing with. "'Hurley won't have changed it,' I growled. "'He hasn't the wit.' Nonetheless, I followed Stan up to the wings, where I found Wren standing ready in her Mabel-Normand get-up. Hurley was on the other side of the stage, luckily for him. "'Hello, Arthur,' Wren whispered. "'This is an odd pickle, isn't it?' "'An odd pickle? Is that what you think it is?' I said, too loud, and she put her finger to my lips. "'Go back down, Arthur,' she breathed. "'It's not good for you to be here.' She turned to glance across at her husband, and as she did so, her Mabel-Normand curls whisked to one side, and I got a clear view of her profile. She had used a lot of make that much was obvious. What was equally plain was that she had been trying, not altogether successfully, to conceal yet another black eye. "'Has he hit you?' I said, again too loudly. "'He has, hasn't he?' "'Shh!' Wren hissed, steering me to the top of the stairs. "'Go down, Arthur, and mind your business.' Just then, the achingly familiar signature music for the nutty burglars struck up, and she whisked herself away with a muttered curse at me for distracting her. I wandered back into the wings and watched as Hurley waddled his poor man's chaplain walk out into the light. He turned and saw me standing there looking at him, and he took the time, even as he was just beginning a routine on an important night, to shoot me a look of such insufferable smug triumph that... Something snapped... A red mist descended. I stepped out onto the stage, seeing that look wipe itself from Hurley's face as quickly as it had appeared, seeing it replaced by disbelief, by anger, and then by fear. And the next thing I knew, I was sitting in a cell in the 43rd Precinct police station, looking down at my bruised and bloodied knuckles, trying to remember what had happened. Stan came to visit me in the morning, the cops let him into the holding cell where I was being kept, and he sat on the bed beside me. The two of us looked at the cracked concrete floor. I'm sorry, Stan. I let you down. The Bostocks say they can put us into a second showcase next month, Stan said. That's good. But. But. They say that the act is unbookable with you still in it. The bookers all saw what you did. They don't want any part of it. Of you. So. What? I'm out? Stan looked at the floor. That's it, isn't it? I'm out. I thought I should be the one to tell you. We've been through a lot together, you and I. We have that. I sat there contemplating the end of my vaudeville career, the end of my working partnership with Stan, the end of my future. It resolutely refused to sink in. You'll carry on with Alice and Baldy? The Stan Jefferson three. Stan nodded. Well... "'It's not as though Charlie ever works with Chester Conklin any more. "'You probably won't even miss me.' "'Stan sighed, shook his head sadly. "'But will you even be able to play Crazy Cracksman again, "'with that hurly nonsense?' "'Yes, that all got sorted out last night.' "'Oh?' "'Claude brought along a lawyer who made it clear to Ed "'that he had no business copywriting something "'that he had, had no part in creating. "'Actually, he was breaking the law, interestingly enough. "'Ha! "'So, he's all right, then?' Well, he's not winning any beauty contests in the near future, but he's up and about, yes. What's going to happen to him? Nothing, actually. Nothing? The Bostocks agreed not to pursue him for passing off and fraudulent misuse of our material in exchange for him not pressing charges against you. I see. The cops will let you go later today when they think you've had enough time to think about what you did and sober up a bit, I guess. Hmm. What will you do? I don't know yet. This has only just happened. It's still happening, technically. Of course. Stan slapped his thighs and got to his feet. I'd better go. We have a half week upstate. Sudden cancellation, you know. Yes, I said. We stood facing one another for a long moment, two awkward English gentlemen faced with an overload of emotional baggage. Then we hugged. We'll see each other again, Stan said, a lump in his throat. Soon, I agreed. Well, good luck. He turned to bang on the door to be let out. Stan, I said, there's something I've been wanting to tell you. Really? When Mac Sennett saw Charlie playing the drunk in New York and decided he would offer him a job if he ever started his own comedy film company, what about it? The night he saw was the night Charlie took a night off and you took his place. The night it should have been you, Stan. It should have been you. Aha! Uh-huh. Stan said, taking this in. You know, I always thought you thought it should have been you. Well, and you thought it would be a good idea to tell me this now because... I just wanted to get it off my chest. Thanks. Thank you very much. Don't mention it. I wish you hadn't. A weary New York cop opened the door then and Stan walked out into the corridor. Good luck, I called as the door banged shut again behind him. I sat back down on the bed and contemplated a wholly uncertain future. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, and nowhere to go there and do it with. What on earth was I supposed to do next? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot... Chapter 35 Wild West Billy. A bell was ringing as the train pulled into the station, and I felt a surge of excitement in the pit of my stomach. The history of this place was made up of the vivid images imprinted in my mind by the lurid literature I enjoyed as a boy. Wagon trains, Indians, Cavalry, Buffalo, Texas Longhorns and Rustlers. Where the Chisholm cattle trail up from Texas met the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad heading east and west. Where wild and raucous cowboys came to carouse and spend their hard-earned cash. Where gunslingers who'd met their match lay mouldering on Boot Hill. Dodge City. When I'd emerged blinking from the 43rd Precinct police station, I felt lost. Adrift. Stan and I had spent the last few years living in one another's pockets, and I already missed his easy company, his infectious laugh, his generous spirit. He would get along fine with Alice and Baldy, I knew that, and I cursed myself for messing things up so badly. I had a curse or two for blasted Edgar Hurley, too, and his damnably attractive wife, and as ever, I cursed Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin, who had sent Tilly away from me, Tilly and my boy, and now it seemed they wanted no more to do with me. I'd written God knows how many letters across the summer, and had not had a single reply, not a one. What more could I do? I saw another of those damnable life-size cut-outs of Charlie waving at me across the street, and suddenly I knew I had to get out of the city, get away altogether, put New York and Stan and the Hurleys behind me, and Tilly and little Wallace too. I suddenly remembered how excited I'd been to come to America in the first place, stoked up by all the penny bloods I'd read as a boy, and I had it, a plan of action. I resolved to head way out west. So I stepped off the train into the baking Kansas sun, strolled through the railway station, which was more substantial than I'd been expecting, and set about orienting myself. I knew that when Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson had established law and order in Dodge, Guns were banned to the north side of the railway tracks, while to the south, along the notorious Front Street, anything went. I headed south. I was expecting to see wooden frame buildings and sod houses, boardwalks to keep the pedestrian traffic above the streets of baked mud, rails for cowboys to hang the reins of their trusty steeds while they drink and gamble, wooden frontages, gun shops, ammo stores, saloons and whiskey houses. Maybe a barber's shop too, a general merchandise store run by a man in a leather apron who's seen it all before, and seed stores for the sod busters, despised by the ranchers because they settled the land and cut them off from the river. There should be a blacksmith's alongside the stables, with a sheriff's office and a calaboose for the town drunk to spend the night in while he dries out. Instead, I found myself confronted by rather stately stone buildings, reds and greys, a courthouse with ornamental pillars, a two-storey bargain store with plate-glass display windows, and a wide main street with automobiles easing sedately along. The skyline was crisscrossed by telegraph wires, and everything about the place seemed to be trying to live down its colourful history. If a place could be said to be aggressively civilised, then it was Dodge City in 1915. Of course, as soon as I saw it, I felt a little foolish. It was always going to be this way. Nothing stayed the same. The Old West was dead, throttled into irrelevance by progress, and good old vaudeville, I suddenly saw in a flash, was heading the same way. Then, up ahead... I saw a name that took me back to the thrilling landscapes of my penny bloods, The Long Branch Saloon. Careful not to look at someone for too long in that place, unless you were looking for to get drilled, of course. Why not get myself a glass or two of old red-eye while I work out what in tarnation to do next, I thought to myself, and I moseyed on down for a look-see. Well, this was more like it. Steer horns on the front, a stretch of wooden boardwalk outside, a rail for tying up your horse which a greengrocer's van pootled past, and an old-timer sitting outside, spitting, chawing backy into a spittoon. I pushed through the half-sized swinging saloon doors and strode up to the bar. There wasn't a pianola playing, and it didn't stop when I walked in. There were a few solitary customers, none playing cards or calling one another lying Yankee dogs, and none of them gave me a second glance. Bartender, whiskey, I growled. An old fellow in a white apron poured me a small glass, but he didn't slide it along the bar to me, nor did he offer to leave the bottle. I downed the drink and turned to look around. "'So this is the old Long Branch Saloon, eh?' "'Well, well, well.' "'Not really,' the old bartender said. "'That burned down back in 85, along with most of the old wooden front street. "'The town tried to reinvent itself after that, "'and they don't really like it that this saloon even exists. "'But sometimes people come here just to get a taste of what it used to be like in this town, "'so we do steady business.' I nodded as the last wisps of steam escaped from my excitement at being there, and turned to look out of the window. Just then I heard the faint tinkling of spurs as someone with a slow, deliberate gait and hard-heeled boots strolled along the boardwalk outside. As I watched, an apparition passed slowly across the frontage, he was a cowboy, from top to bottom, from his ten-gallon hat to his leather chaps, from the twin gun-belts slung criss-cross around his waist to the boot tie with a silver steer's head clasp. He had a snow-white walrus moustache curling down from his top lip, and he was as bow-legged as you might expect a man to be after a lifetime on horseback. "'Who's that?' I hissed to the barman. "'That,' he said. "'That's Wild West Billy.' "'Wild West Billy?' He's lived here for fifty year, seen it all and done most of it himself, if you believe the tales he tells, which I don't, particularly, but still. I slammed my shot glass down on the bar and pushed out through the swing doors, which rocked back and forward in my wake. The elderly cowboy was walking on down Front Street, taking his own sweet time, and I followed, just to see where a man like that might be going, keeping what I thought was a respectful distance between us. He turned a corner and then sauntered casually out into the middle of a side street, "'where he suddenly stopped dead in his tracks. "'I stopped too, wondering what he was doing. "'The old geezer turned his head slowly "'and launched a mighty spit into the dust. "'Something I can do for you, sonny,' he said, without turning round. "'I saw his hands hanging loosely by his sides, "'ready to snatch up the pearl-handled pistols from his holsters. "'Christ!' I gasped. "'No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean... "'Just a lookin'. is that it?' "'Yes, exactly, just looking.' Wild West Billy turned slowly to face me and launched another mighty spit. You probably wouldn't know this, being from out of town, but if you want to be looking at me, it'll cost you. He took a pearl-handled revolver from its holster and pointed it at me, at my guts. The air of calculating menace was palpable, and I felt my bowels loosening as I shot my hands straight up in the air. Please, I yelped, I'm unarmed. I see that, the old gunfighter drawled. Then, with a twitch of his gun, he indicated that I should walk in front of him, and I saw no good reason just then to disobey. Along the street I stumbled, my hands in the air, at this old codger's mercy. He wouldn't really shoot me in the back, would he, just for having the temerity to watch him walking along? I didn't know, because I couldn't tell for sure whether this old codger was playing with a full deck. Why was nobody doing anything? My eyes darted from side to side, but there was not another soul in sight. Finally, I heard the oddly menacing jangling of his ancient spurs come to a halt, and his rasping voice saying, "'That's far enough.' I closed my eyes, wondering if the next instant would bring a sudden burning pain between my shoulder blades and a mouthful of dirt. "'Turn around, Sonny,' the old man said, with another horribly fluid spit. I turned to face him, and his gun twitched once, twice. "'suggesting, no, insisting, that I move to my right and keep walking. "'This I did, looking up to find myself outside a familiar type of establishment, "'styling itself Dodge City Varieties. "'I kept walking until I could go no further, "'finding myself at a box-office window. "'The old cowboy came close then, "'and leaned in front of me to speak to the woman in attendance. "'This here son of a sodbuster would like a ticket for tonight's performance,' he drawled. "'Give the lady two bits.' "'Oh, Billy,' the woman said, with a long-suffering sigh "'as she passed me a ticket in exchange for my coins. "'You know Mr Makepeace told you not to bring people here at gunpoint.' "'Wild West Billy looked at me then, smiled an evil smile, and winked. "'See you tonight, son, and you can look at me all you want, "'since we've got your money.' "'Once my heart stopped racing and I was alone again on the street outside, "'I saw the bill matter for that evening's vaudeville, "'and Wild West Billy was indeed the headliner.' Guts, gore and gunplay. I thought to myself that I might as well go along, as I had a ticket after all. But first, I needed a drink. As someone who has enjoyed and endured Music Hall and Vaudeville on both sides of the Atlantic, I can tell you that Dodge City Varieties was not the absolute apex. The theatre was stuffy and dilapidated, and that description would also fit the majority of the acts on the bill. One of them, if you can believe this, was called the Musical Cow Milkers, and in fairness to them, they weren't trying to pull a fast one of any kind. A husband and wife brought a cow onto the stage, an honest-to-goodness cow, and then proceeded to milk it, while singing a handful of intermittently harmonious duets together. The cow didn't deign to join in and make it a trio. Like the rest of us, it looked on with a faintly glazed expression, waiting for it all to be over. Wild West Billy sauntered out onto the stage in the prime spot, midway through the second half of proceedings. He stood at the front of the apron, over to one side, stuck his thumbs into his gun-belt, and regarded us all with a cool gaze that seemed to take our measure and not be particularly impressed with it. "'I ain't much of a one for talking,' he drawled, managing to imply that all of us talked all the time, that was all we did, and he couldn't be doing with it. "'I'm a man of action.' You're a low-down Yankee liar, that's what you are, came a cry, and out onto the stage from the opposite wing stepped a lethal-looking gunfighter dressed all in black, from his hat to his boots. Wild West Billy turned to face his antagonist and settled himself, his hands relaxed, hanging by his sides. Prove it, he said, and the whole audience held its breath. They held the moment for agonising second after agonising second. Then the black-clad gunfighter twitched his gun from its holster, and Wild West Billy responded like a rattlesnake. The two guns went off with a noise that made the whole audience flinch, and the black gunfighter was flying backwards, a mist of blood exploding from his chest. Wild West Billy held his pose, and then with a twirl forwards and backwards, he tricked his pistol back into its holster, and all was calm. I found myself clicking my jaw from side to side, trying to ease my hearing back to normal. Two stagehands trotted on and carted the ancient cowboy's rival off into the wings, which I thought was a nice touch. We all knew it was a trick, of course, an effect. It wasn't as if they could fire live rounds at one another every night, and he surely didn't have an inexhaustible supply of sidekicks. But it was very well done. That sort of scene was commonplace on Front Street, when Dodge City was in its prime. Wild West Billy drawled, and curtains drew back to reveal a backdrop of the town's main drag in its cattle-drive heyday. I saw the old cowboy's shoulders sag a little when he saw it, and I could tell he wasn't happy about the tatty-painted cloth, which had definitely seen better days, and all of them a good number of years ago. The old fellow ploughed on through a history of the town, from the early days when buffalo hunters would pile their hides as high as a house, to the coming of the railroad which made the town a pivotal destination for the cattle drives up from Texas. I learned that railway men took their red caboose lanterns with them when visiting what you might call the town's soiled doves, hence the term Red Light District and we heard how Billy himself had helped Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson and the posse of lawmen known as the Dodge City Peace Commission clean up the north side. It could have been true, who could tell? He was certainly old enough. There was an exhibition of extremely loud sharp shooting, which saw the spectacular demise of a certain amount of crockery and a good deal of nervousness in the audience around me about the possibility of ricochets and then a finale featuring another lightning-fast gun duel with another gunfighter who looked suspiciously like the first one in a different hat. All in all, not a bad act at all. If only the painted backdrops had been up to the same standard. There were six, each one shabbier than the one before it. Later, I sat in the Long Branch saloon contemplating a glass of sipping whiskey when a copious gobbet of something unpleasant pinged the spittoon near my feet. I looked around, and there was Wild West Billy himself. He leaned on the bar beside me and ordered himself a drink by very slightly inclining his head in the general direction of Al the bartender. "'So,' he said, "'enjoy the show?' "'I did,' I said. "'You are clearly very skilled with your weapon.' The old cowboy snorted some of his drink back into his glass at that and began to laugh. "'Ha! Skilled with my weapon! I like that! You like that, Al! (laughs) Ha-ha!' Just then, a portly busybody in a three-piece suit came in through the swing doors and waddled over to my ancient companion. "'Billy, there you are. I might have known,' he said, taking out his pocket watch and tapping it accusingly with his forefinger. "'I told you, no drinking between shows.' "'And I told you I needed a new cloth. So where is it?' the old man said, turning slowly to look dangerously at the newcomer. "'This again. I told you I can't afford to send it to Houston, and if you want it, you can pay for it yourself. Now off with you. Go on.' Wild West Billy grumbled to himself, and then he walked off in his own good time, spurs jingle-jangling as he went. The portly gent heaved a long-suffering sigh checked his pocket watch once again before beckoning the bartender over. He saw me watching him and smiled. "'Do as I do, not as I say, eh?' he said, as his glass was filled. "'You're the manager of the varieties?' I hazarded. "'Martin Makepeace, at your service, sir.' I heard old Wild West Billy complaining about his cloth. Do I take it he's referring to the painted backdrops he uses? He's always given me grief about that. He uses half a dozen different scenes, and they're getting a bit tatty. I have some experience of this kind of work, I said. I had, as well, having painted backdrops for Carno's football match sketch back in England, not to mention a stint as a screever in Trafalgar Square doing music hall scenes in chalk for pennies. I wasn't bad, if I say so myself. Maybe I can do you a good turn. Oh, Makepeace said, sensing a bargain. "'And before I even realised it, I'd been there for a couple of months. "'Makepeace gave me a trial job at the varieties, "'repainting one of Wild West Billy's backdrops, the one of Old Front Street. "'Both he and the old gunslinger were so pleased with my handiwork "'that they hired me to spruce up all the others as well, "'splitting the cost between them.' After that, Makepeace employed me to refurbish their stock of generic sheets, such as the cowshed backdrop used by these strange musical cow milkers, and it seemed I'd fallen headlong into a nice little bit of steady work. I spent quite a bit of time with Wild West Billy, who called me Junior, and I even began to help him out on stage. His assistant lit out without warning one day, never to be seen or heard from again, and I was happy enough to don the black hat and blood bag and let him shoot me down. He was always firing blanks, of course, and when he needed to smash some plates or plug some tin cans to convince the audience he was using real bullets, there were little charges attached to these key target objects, which I learned to set off to sell the illusion that he was an expert quick-draw artist. I was content there, as the winter came on, living in an old-style room with a fireplace and a big brass bedstead above the long branch, until two things happened to darken my mood considerably. The first was the arrival of a sightseer from England. He stepped off the train in very much the same spirit as I had myself, hoping to find the spirit of the Old West still thriving, having given himself a few hours to look around between trains. He left with a disappointed shrug shortly after, heading for the West Coast, leaving behind a newspaper from England, a copy of the Times of London, no less. Well, I snatched this up naturally.' and began to read of the horrifying carnage in Flanders and in the Dardanelles at a place called Gallipoli. Several of the inside pages were taken up by lists of officers and men who had been killed in action, and I couldn't help reading through these. It seemed like the least I could do to pay my respects to the fallen while I was faffing about thousands of miles away, acting out old gun battles with blanks. With a shock that chilled my blood, my eye caught on one name in particular. Frederick Carnot, Jr., Killed in action, Gallipoli campaign. I couldn't think, couldn't take it in, except to wonder crazily, irrelevantly, why he had enlisted using his stage name rather than his own and his father's real name, which was Westcott. Freddy, dear, jolly, generous Freddy, alongside Stan, my best friend in the world. Gone. I sat in the saloon bar of the Long Branch, the newspaper spread out on the table before me, and I wept. The line that kept echoing in my grief-stricken mind was one I had heard many times before, whenever I contemplated the different paths Chaplin and I had taken since we started out together. Just now, though, I was thinking about Charlie giving money to Tilly to go back to England, and Freddie going with her, in my place, and the old, old refrain went round and round in my head. It should have been me. It should have been me. The second thing that happened to blacken my mood. We'll come to that.